Welcome back to the All Things Bama podcast, powered by BamaCentral.com. I'm your host, Tyler Martin, and today I'm joined by a very, very, very special guest, uh, Chris Stewart, a Crimson Tide Sports Network broadcaster. Chris, how are you doing this morning? Um, Really great to talk to you. Tyler, I appreciate it. I'm doing really good and uh, glad to be on with you. I'd be better if Alabama had lost the the night before, and at the time you and I are having this conversation, but uh, otherwise I'm doing great. I really am. You know, it's it's pretty cool for us. You're a part of um, now the guest list on our podcast. We had Eli Gold on in the fall, and we've also had Wimp on there too. So with you and Eli, I feel like we've now had the best tandem in terms of football and uh, basketball radio broadcast for college teams in the country. Well, it's nice of you to say. Anytime I get mentioned in the same breath with Eli, uh, it's an honor, but I appreciate you saying that. Um, Chris, let's go ahead and start out with this. Um, you, you're you in your 18th season, correct, right now yeah, at Alabama? Correct. Yeah, almost two years, almost 20 years. Um, first, I want to ask you this. You're, you're, you're an Alabama native. Um, you went to Montevallo. How did you How did you end up at the Capstone calling basketball games? Yeah, I'm really, really fortunate because usually guys that get jobs – similar to this, they have to bounce around and move uh, a good bit before they get a chance like this. I've always lived within 30 minutes, basically, of where I was born. I was born in Fairfield, went to college, you know, as you said, at Montevallo after I graduated from Central Park Christian. Um, I, I remind Rod Grizzard whenever I see him that I was I was the best three-point shooter at Central Park until he came along. Uh <laughs> Well, it's only because I was the first. But uh, anyway, um, great time at Montevallo. Moved back to Birmingham and got involved in doing uh, sports editor for the Over the Mountain Journal and did some some local cable access uh, work there. And then the Alabama Cable Network actually got the rights. They were the first ones to do this. They got the rights to do uh, Alabama, Auburn, and UAB games on a tape delay basis. And I got involved in doing their uh, work with them. I had been doing high school and then they kept me on and Alabama approved me to do um, a, a lot of events with uh, with Crimson Tide. And then the very next year, after a, a year of doing that, that TV stuff with ACN, uh, an opening came about for baseball and I got a chance to join David Crane on the, the baseball broadcast. Did that for three seasons before the basketball job opened up and was given that opportunity and so I guess it's it's about 21 years now that I've been on baseball and uh it's my 18th for basketball and just pinch myself practically every day can't believe that I'm you know a place where I've where I was a fan of Alabama my whole life and grew up in this state I know what the Crimson Tide means I know what it I know what it's always meant to me and to have a chance to to uh, have a front row seat for some incredible moments uh, is beyond special. And, you know, Chris, when you were calling, you know, high school games and then, you know, Birmingham Southern games, did you ever right. think that you were going to, you know, elevate to a level, you know, get a job at, you know, with the Crimson Tide Sports Network? Um, and did you ever imagine your career ever looking like this? You know, it's, it's funny. When I was a kid, apparently, you know, when they ask you what you want to be, apparently I used to say, that I wanted to be a broadcaster for the Crimson Tide. I don't remember it. I don't doubt it, but I've had too many friends that have told me, man, I remember us being in third grade and you said you were going to do this. 
I remember being wanting to be a sportscaster. And if you had probably asked me 25 years ago, all right, you're going to have a chance to broadcast Alabama or you're going to be at ESPN, I would have said my odds were better to be at ESPN. Not that um, I think that ESPN is necessarily a better job um, or that I thought I was, um, you know, however you want to, whatever reason you want to, you want to put to it. I just thought, all right, there's only a couple of those jobs available for Alabama and there are a lot more available at ESPN, so maybe I'll get one of those. It never, it never crossed my mind that I'd have a chance to broadcast for Alabama um, until these dominoes started to fall with, with AC and sports. And I didn't even apply for the basketball job at Alabama. Um, I was just told that I was in the mix when it came open and was thankfully given the opportunity um, and – Hadn't looked back. I thankfully hadn't messed it up too badly in the in this uh, this time frame. They hadn't made a change, but I'm I'm thankful every day and thankful every year that I get to do it. Now, Chris, I want to ask you about uh, oh, the last year or so um, because your your story is pretty remarkable. Um, first, take me back to 2018 um, when when you had suffered a stroke. Um, Take me back to, you know, what, you know, going through that, going through, you know, some medical issue like that. Um, what, you know, walk, walk me through that. Yeah, it was, it was crazy. I just got back from a uh, baseball trip to Texas A&M. Thankfully, we played a Thursday, Friday, Saturday series uh, in College Station. Got back home, felt fine, no issues whatsoever. Uh, had a family birthday party on Sunday that I'd gone to. Still didn't feel bad. Went to bed at midnight. My wife finds me about 4.30, uh, making some odd noises in my sleep, kind of balled up in the fetal position, thinks I'm having a bad dream, tries to wake me, can't, um, calls the paramedics. They, frankly, made a misdiagnosis that I had taken uh, too much Ambien, sleeping pill that was prescribed for me. Uh, long story short, they get, to, they get me to the hospital, after initially leaving, and thank God she called him back two hours later when I was even less responsive, but got to the hospital and did all sorts of tests, and there was no ambient in my system whatsoever. Now, I'd taken a half a pill, just as I normally would to, before I went to sleep at night, but uh, there was nothing in my system at that point at St. Vincent's Hospital, and they were relieved, and then they realized, uh-oh, we got another problem. Now we don't know. Uh, they knew They found a clot after a second EKG and go, okay, we got another issue now. We don't know, or we don't have a doctor here that, that can do that kit that can remove the clot. So there are two options were Birmingham, excuse me, UAB or Brookwood. And the physician that was in charge of me at um, St. Vincent's knew the doctor at Brookwood called him. And that's when everything sort of made sense in terms of the delay and the mistakes that were made earlier. Um, the doctor that I was supposed to wind up with, I'll always believe that, Jatendra Sharma, had two cases on the books that morning, both of which got canceled, and that's how he was able to take me. He gets me in, uh, gets me on the operating table, removes the clot. I wake up, and you know, w- one of Dr. Sharma's sayings, but it's also in the, I guess, in the stroke world, is that time is brain, and the longer you go without treatment the the greater the likelihood that you're going to lose brain function, if not lose your life entirely. 
So I went from anywhere between 7 and 11 hours. Since we don't know exactly when the stroke occurred, it was during my sleep, and it was somewhere between midnight and 4.30 when I went to bed and when my wife found me, but um, or found me in that condition. But somewhere between 7 and 11 hours before I had the clock cleared. So they have no explanation for that medically other than God granted me incredible favor to pull me through that and to not have any serious function, serious issues. Now, for about 10 or 11 months, my left eye, um, left eye muscle was not working properly, and so it was off, and I had to wear a patch over my eye if I wore contacts, um, or I would wear uh, tape over the left eye if I wore my glasses so that I could function strictly off the right eye. But there was no structural damage to the eye itself. It was just muscle-related. Well, after 11 months, the uh, the doctor took the tape off my glasses after doing a test and said, you can keep it if you want. He said, but uh, you don't need it. Come see me in a year. So um, I, uh, I'm incredibly fortunate. I had no vision issues whatsoever from that point forward. I actually keep that little piece of scotch tape in my in my wallet as a reminder of uh, of what transpired. But the, the crazy thing, and I'll give you a little bridge, and then I'll let you ask your, your question here, but uh, Jay Sharma saving me uh, for my stroke and the relationship that I built with him would ultimately save my life from a heart issue because I, I ran into him at a um, – actually, another business that he has, a weight loss uh, program. I went there for the grand opening of his second location just to support him. He asked me how I was doing. I said, I felt great other than one thing. He said, what's that? I said, I got a little tightness in my left arm, and I showed him where, and he said, that's your heart. you got to get that looked at. So when I say that the man saved my life twice, uh, that that is why. He uh, he saved me from the stroke or when I had the stroke, but he also, in all likelihood, saved me from a massive heart attack that would have killed me. Well, thank, yeah, thank, thank God for Dr. Sharma. Um, just to rewind a little bit, you after after the stroke, you came back in the fall of 2018. Um, broadcast, yes. you know, came back. You you got you got back on the call for the games, um, and then you had the, the heart bypass surgery in August of 2019, this past year. Correct. Uh, and then uh, you know, talk, walk me through you know because afterwards I know uh, there was an infection and some complications. What was um. What you know after the heart surgery? When did things really begin to go south? It was really quick. Um, uh, as I told you, Sharma suggested I get in and get it looked at. They discovered there was 95% blockage in the the main artery of the heart, what's referred to as the widowmaker. Uh, I have a family history of this. My mother, uh, my dad had bypass surgery, and dad's still alive. Thankfully, he's 90 and um, has some health issues, but it's not heart related. Um, my mother. Uh, had her first bypass surgery in 1977. John Kirkland, who the Kirkland Clinic is named for, uh, performed that surgery when I was just seven years old. She uh, she survived that, did very well. Ten years later, though, she had more blockage and had to do bypass again, got through the surgery just fine, but unfortunately died on the elevator coming back down to the cardiac intensive care unit. So wow. with Dr. Kirkland doing the surgery again. So 
there's that history. And so I've always been conscious of that. But when they got me on the table to do what they thought would be strictly uh, to put a stint in, they were doing the arteriogram, we're going to put the stint in, is what the anticipation was. And then the doctor said, Chris, we're going to have to circle back. And turned out there was, with 95% blockage, they were going to have to do bypass surgery. So we did that at, at Brookwood Surgery. Russ Ronson was my surgeon, big Alabama fan. And everything went well. With the surgery, I was home. <laughs> um, had surgery on a Monday. I was home on a Friday. Uh, church on Sunday. Had friends stop by Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. David Crane, uh, who I referenced earlier, was uh, the third visitor that I had on that Wednesday. Uh, I think he walked out of my house about 7 o'clock on Wednesday night. And, Tyler, I have no recollection of the next month. I was home for a week and a half. Uh, I didn't feel well. My wife knew that. We were in consultation with doctors, but everything was checking out as basically your typical post-surgery issues, uh, nothing that was overly concerning to them. Uh, she did bring me in, uh, like I said, about a week and a half later to get checked out. They they ran tests. They looked at me. They sent me home. Uh, and I say this, again, with no memory of it. This is how this is what she's told me to to uh, let me know what transpired because I I just have no memory of it. Went uh, went back to the hospital two days later. They ran more tests and sent me home again. But she said that when we were pulling away from Brookwood, that I turned and looked at her and said, "I'm not leaving this hospital." She pulls over to the side. She calls Dr. Ronson back on his cell phone, tells him what I had had just said, and he said, "No problem. Bring him in. We'll put him in a put him in a room." And it was over the next two or three days that things started to head south. My my uh, my lungs, my liver, my kidneys all started to shut down. Basically, if, if I had it, it was shutting down. And it was uh, another thing where I thank God that even, even though I don't have any recollection of it, that I had enough, um, enough to me, enough wherewithal, whatever you want to phrase it, that I knew something wasn't right and insisted on uh, being at the hospital. Otherwise, I wouldn't have made it. It was because of where things were. They they put me in a coma for two weeks. Um, it was an induced coma so that I could rest, my body could rest and heal. Um, came out of that, and, and everything had shut down. I had dropped from um, one, basically, well, when I had the initial bypass surgery, I went from 165 to 155, which is not, uncommon at all for a surgery but then i went from 155 to somewhere below 120 when the infection set in it was uh i had um, pneumonia rhabdomyolysis um the, it basically said if you could have it i did and that that i was as sick as you could possibly be without dying and so um with the, the weight loss below 120 uh, as I talked to you today, I'm, I'm back up to 150 and, and feel good. I'm not 100%. My strength is not uh, at full, you know, I'm not at full strength anymore. My muscles have not uh, come back to where I, I have the stamina that I once did, but I'm, I'm good. Uh, everything looks good. It's just a matter of time, effort, therapy that, uh, that I've got to do on my own. I've had great therapists that have show me what I need to do and have got me to this point, but now it's going to be up to me. And they say, look, don't get frustrated. Don't get down. It's just going to take time and it's going to take a lot of work. 
but I'm I'm prepared to do that. But it's it's easily been the uh, the most challenging, toughest, worst time of my life, and it's also been the greatest blessing that God's ever given me because I've encountered so many people that have been so kind and so good to me, people that helped me through the whole situation. You know, I I spent 91 days in the hospital after the heart surgery, not not from the heart surgery, but this this is when I went back in two and a half weeks later, I guess, um, it was, it was a 91 day stay between the, the two and a half months at Brookwood and then three weeks at Spain Rehabilitation Center. Um, so, so went home the day before Thanksgiving, which has never been a more meaningful holiday for me than that one. But and to spend that time there was, was a lot. And Chris, through it all, um, you mentioned your faith, you mentioned Dr. Sharma, um, but talk to me just real quick before we move on to other things about um, about your wife, about Christy, about your kids, yeah. and the strength that, you know, that they showed um, throughout this time because, you know, for, you know, for, for a wife to be, you know, bearing so much adversity and, you know, basically death in the face, um, you know, with three kids, I mean, what um, – you know, what? talk to me about her strength and just her resiliency going through this time. Well, she is a tiny, incredibly gorgeous, absolutely beautiful woman who is maybe the toughest pound-per-pound son of a gun I've ever met in my life. She's been through a lot, and uh, I'm, I'm grateful to her. I'm grateful for her, and she'll be the first to tell you, we had a lot of help. She had a lot of help. Um Family, friends were with me during the day. Not that I, not that I wasn't getting great care at the hospitals, uh, two different hospitals, because I was. But to have family and friends there to check on things for her uh, and with me were were huge. It allowed her to do uh, once once school started for the kids. Uh, she was she was able to go back to work a good bit uh, and. And obviously, Tyler Watts, who she works for as a nationwide agent, was great to her to allow her the total flexibility in her schedule to to care for me and care for the kids as she needed to. But I think she needed that distraction of work each day. But, you know, while people were taking care of me during the day, she could concern herself with the boys. And uh, my daughter had gone off to college. Um, In fact, the day that I had the, the, the bypass surgery, the day that she started Rush, uh, you know, to be in sorority. And um, frankly, I'm glad that those two things coincided because it provided a distraction for her. And I had insisted that she go on and take part in that. But for Christy, uh, while she she had during the day all those things covered for me, she always made time. She found a way virtually every day to get to the hospital to spend time with me so I could see the boys. And, and look, I've been there. As I said, I, I dealt with this as a, as a child with my mother, but it, it's no fun for a kid to be at the hospital, even though they were thrilled to see me and see me healthy. As those days went on and those weeks went on, it was uh, tougher and tougher for them. It becomes a grind for them. So we, we tried to minimize that time, but in, in terms of the, the watch, if you will, but maximize the time that we had together, and it would it it made my day just to see her and the, the 
the boys walk in the room and to have that time with her. Uh, but she always carved that out. I don't know how she did it. Um, she has incredible strength, as I said, phenomenal woman, and I'm incredibly lucky that she's mine. And during your stay, during that long stay in the hospital, Chris, I know Coach Oates, um, and I, I yeah. believe Herb Jones too uh, visited yeah. you guys. Uh, visited you guys in the hospital. And Kyra, they they came. I'll tell you this real quick. They came on their way to the SEC media day. Uh, it was in the middle of my stay at Brookwood, and they were going to the media event at the Grand Bohemian. And uh, Coach Coach built extra time in the schedule. They came by beforehand. He and and Kyra and, and her came by to see me, and it was a a huge lift. And and some other people from the athletic department as well. Uh, it was a special it was a special day for me. It meant a lot to me that they would that they would take that time out to come and visit with me. And you tell me what it was like when you got back to being able to do what you love, and that's call Alabama games. You made the road trip to Gainesville for the first SEC game. And then yeah. talk about that, and then tell me about the ovation you received against Mississippi State for that first home conference game. I think that ovation was louder than when Herb Jones hit those two one-handed free kicks <laughs> against LSU on Saturday. Um, I don't know about that, but I know it was incredibly meaningful. My brother was there. My brother's about 19 years older than I am, and I love to remind him of that fact, pick at him. But uh, he was a high school coach for years, and we he he brought me. Uh, when I was a little boy, he brought me to Coleman Coliseum one year to the, the state tournament to see Fairfield play. And, um, you know, after the game, we had the family all down on the floor. We we're going to take a, a picture together. Uh, after that Mississippi State game, I looked at him and grinned. I said, I didn't deserve it, but did you ever think you'd see the day? I said, could you have imagined when you brought me to that, that state tournament that one day I'd get a standing ovation in this building? <laughs> he laughed and he said, no, he said, that's pretty wild. And um, it was none of what transpired was expected, but it, it meant so much to me. I've had so many people that have taken the time to, to speak and tell me they've prayed for me or they wish me well or whatever variation of that you want to go with. Uh, and that's on the road, too. I, I'm not exaggerating when I say I had 30 different people that I've never met in my life do that at Auburn for the game down there uh, in other places. So um, the kindness of people. But that night, that night to do to to walk into that building and to be able to call a game and then to have the reception that I got, um, it will always be one of the most special nights of my life. And to be able to to go back to you know to, to be able to go back and do a game. Is, is that fly? And I'm kind of glad the first one was on the road because I'm not going to say the game in Tuscaloosa wasn't emotional because obviously it was, but it helped me to work through some of that, you know, a first time deal on the road before I got back to Tuscaloosa and, and uh, know that I could call the game. But people were great there. I mean, Greg Byrne, our athletic director, came over to see me and uh, Scott Strickland, his longtime friend and mine. I mean, when I met Scott, and for those that don't know, he's the athletic director at Florida, but he came over to, to see me as well. Back when I referenced ACN and my work with them, I did a, I did some games in which we covered Auburn, and Scott was the baseball SID back then and took me to dinner one night uh, when I came in early before a, a series that may have even been the regional 
that took place there. Um, and Scott and I went to dinner, and, you know, it's a, it's a long time ago, but he's still a great guy. So for them to come over and, and to see me, um, Coach Oates, after a gut-wrenching loss, uh, in which they were up by 21 in the first half and then losing double overtime at the end of his interview um, brings up the fact that it's my first game back and how glad he is that I'm there. you got to remember now, this is a guy that I didn't have a long history with. You know, I, I'd met him right after he got the job, and we, we traveled together once or twice for uh, speaking engagements with fans, but it's not like we had spent a ton of time together. And I think it just speaks to the kind of person that he is and, but that's all through the athletic department, Tyler. You know, Brad Bohannon and his staff came to see me a couple of times. Coach Saban, in the, you know, when I was my sickest, it was in the middle of football season. And after the, the TV show, um, one night or after a ball game and after they had taped the television show, he sent me a videotape message, just a, you know, a very kind minute long private message, uh, that he cut up a little bit at the end of it that, that meant a lot heard from Terry and, and from uh, coach's daughter and they, everybody has been unbelievable. I, I could not have imagined the, um, the amount of kindness that I've heard that I've had shown to me and my family from so many different people in so many different ways. And that's why when I made the statement a few moments ago, it's the, it's the toughest and worst thing I've ever encountered, but it's also easily one of the greatest blessings of my life. Well, uh, just a a few more things, Chris, uh, you know, throughout your, your broadcasting career with the Crimson Tide, and you mentioned the game last night against Texas A&M. Unfortunately, the Crimson Tide wasn't able to pull that one out, but I go back to, uh, the Colin Sexton year in the SC tournament, uh, when he hit that buzzer beater, how many times have you heard your call over and over again? (laughs) A bunch, um, and you know, and it's been nice because for one thing, I keep going back when they they put the video with it. I go, holy cow, that guy took off from the free throw line, and it was you know what it was almost what you think of as a finger roll. It wasn't quite that, but it was uh, you know the the layup itself was kind of a traditional layup in terms of how he shot it, but the but the guy left from the free throw line. And, and flew halfway down the lane before he let the ball go. And, you know, that was a, that was an incredible shot that would have been, that would have been big, you know, in the month of December. Um, the way you win it and as electric as it was for him to go coast to coast like that. But with what that shot meant at that time, you know, that was going to be, if you lose that game, you're not going to go to the NCAA tournament you're going to have one of the most um, decorated players or most talked about players in school history, and you're not even going to get to the NCAA tournament uh, with him. And there were going to be a lot of question marks about could it be done again at Alabama. Now, I know we haven't gotten, they haven't built off that since, but there is still very much, and, and understandably so, a belief that, that Alabama can compete at the highest level in men's basketball. And so I, the fact that that shot went in, they followed it up with that great win over Auburn, um, got to the NCAA tournament, won a game against Buzz Williams in Virginia Tech in a great contest, 
uh, and unfortunately had to run into that buzzsaw that was Villanova in the next game. But it it put belief back that Alabama could be an NCAA tournament participant on a regular basis and go beyond being a first-round team. And I think that that was so important because when you look at the history, this program has been more than that. There's the belief that it can go to another level. Uh, I think there's a strong belief, and understandably so, that that will happen with the coaching staff that we have in place now. Um, it was just a – it was a – I've gotten off topic, and I apologize, but that was a – that was such a meaningful night, and the reason I lost my mind is because it was going to be a really rough off season if – that shot doesn't go in and you don't build off of it the way Alabama did. But it was uh, it was unbelievable. And, and I thanked Colin. We got back to the team hotel, saw him in the lobby, and I said, I said, thanks, you got me more airtime than I've had in five years. And because uh, they were already starting to play the highlight on national outlets and things like that. And and uh, he laughed. And when I've, I've seen him back in Tuscaloosa a couple of times since then, we, we, we laugh and talk about it and, He's um, he's a special young man. I'm so glad that things are, are things are going well for him. I know the team's not playing great, but he's having a really nice career. And and uh, still, from what I found out just about a week ago, kid's still working on his degree. Uh, academics were extremely important to him then, and here he is a multimillionaire, and and he still wants that sheepskin. So he's uh, he's still working on that and. I'll, I have no doubt whatsoever that he will be one day a graduate of the University of Alabama as well. That's fantastic. Would, but th- that call, you would consider that like your most beloved call in your mind and your, I guess your favorite call? Um, I don't know. It's it's up there. Uh, Trevor Relliford's three at the end of uh, regulation that, that beat Georgia on what was the final game of the regular season gave Alabama uh, still a glimmer of hope for the NCAA tournament, but it was totally selfish on my part. And I've, I've told this a few times. We're getting, you know, that whole season had been a celebration of 100 years of Alabama basketball, and that game with Georgia was going to be the the climax of all of that. You had all the former, you know, former players have been invited back, coaches, um, managers, everybody that was a part of Alabama basketball had been invited back for that that celebration was going to take place throughout the day and then a big reception after the game that I was going to MC. Well, Alabama had a, a big second-half lead, let it get away. Georgia's got the ball in a tie game with 10 seconds to go. It looks like they're going to cut our hearts out and and win that thing. And instead of MCing a party, I'm going to go have to MC a funeral uh, is what that that gathering would have been like upstairs. And at best, you're hoping for overtime. And in the span of just two seconds, it goes from the guy, you know, Charles Mann losing the basketball, and Rodney Cooper picks it up, flips it to Relliford. He, he looks at the clock, takes two dribbles, and shoots, not throws, but shoots the most beautiful, you know, shot that's almost three-quarters court. And, and gets nothing but the bottom of the net and practically caught the ball himself underneath. That one, that one's probably the all-timer right there, if there is one. Uh, even though, you know, Ron Steele, a game winner against Georgia, there have been 
there have been some others. There have been some other really big games and big moments that I've had the privilege of witnessing and, and being on the call for. But those are two that will, especially for the most recent years, those are the two that uh, that people talk about as well. And, oh, by the way, Relly's shot was on my son's second birthday. That And he thought it was – he thought it, the shot was made for his birthday present. So that's <laughs> always made it a neat thing as well. That's awesome. And two more things. What uh... – you know, the dynamic of you and Brian um, and your producer, Tom Stipe, and then, you know, Roger Hoover coming alongside, you know, in your absence, and he's been there now um, he's yeah. back helping out. Uh, what's the dynamic between you four like? Uh, and then can you confirm this for me, Chris? I've been told Tom is like he's, he's seen the most Alabama basketball games in person out of anybody. Uh, can you, can yes. you confirm this? Yes, I can confirm that Tom Stipe is old. Uh, that is, that's for Tom when he hears this or hears about it. Uh, Tom's great. And yes, I don't, I don't think there's anybody else that he's been the engineer for Bama basketball for about, I, I can't remember the exact number of years, but I think it's closer to 35 than it is 30. And, um, you know, he's been doing it since he was, since he was a very young man and none of us are young anymore, unfortunately, except for Roger. But, um, he's, he's seen a ton, uh, you know, since his playing, since his college days, and was a, a Bama basketball fan then, and went to see a bunch of games, and then then being, uh, you know, at the board and running the the show for so many years with, um, you know, Paul Kennedy and then Eli and and now myself, and um, you know, I can't imagine can't imagine being on the call for more than a game or two without him. He's just tremendous at what he does, and then Roger who did an absolutely fantastic job. And I'm not saying that to be, you know, to give the company line or to be a good teammate or whatever. He was tremendous uh, on the call uh, while I was away. And it was part of why I didn't feel rushed to get back because I knew that it was in good hands and I didn't need to come back until I felt like I was ready. And thankfully I I felt ready uh, to come back and, and start in January but also, thankfully, uh, our general manager, Jim Carabin, is a tremendous person um, and said, hey, we want to make sure that, you know, he didn't say it, but he but he said it, and I totally understand, wanted to have Roger there as, as kind of a safety net, you know, if I can because we didn't know for sure how I was going to be able to handle, you know, doing a full game and, and all of that. So to have Roger there and available, but and we didn't know how long that would last, so we said let's let's use him as as best we can, as much as we can. Uh, not just sitting there in a in a uh, box that says you know break in an emergency, and you pull Roger Hoover out and and plug him in for me. Let's let's use him. And so we went back to some things that we did when I first started, when we had Brian come on and and join Tom Roberts and I. We uh, and we actually took it to another level. We we put um, Roger as the host of the broadcast, where he's handling and, and driving all the pregame, halftime, and postgame, and he's given us great insight. And we appreciate so much the access that Coach Oates is giving him to uh, to give reports from the bench in game, and and with Tom giving the scores. But to me, the guy that doesn't get enough credit is Brian Passant because. His insight as a former player, uh, his ability to to 
break things down, and it's tougher on radio because you've got to be quick about it. You've got to be descriptive without being overly wordy. And for him to be able to share with the listeners insight and from the perspective of a guy who's worn the Alabama uniform and still loves and supports Alabama basketball at a high level, he's uh, he is tremendous. There's nobody better. And he also gets the concept of making sure that I get to finish what I need to say in terms of describing ball position, score, and time before he starts his comments. That's huge. Um, not because my ego needs me to have the airtime, but because if I don't paint, if I don't paint the initial picture of what's going on, then his analysis it doesn't mean as much to the listener. It, it doesn't have the same context. So he's tremendous at that. And on top of it, frankly, I don't have a better friend than Brian. He was so good to me. He was already my friend, but he's become a brother because of the way he looked after me, my family, while I was in the hospital, you know, he'd come to see me virtually every day. He made sure that, you know, Saturdays were spent almost like a tailgate day for me, coming and watching college football with me and World Series games or, or just, you know, hanging out with me at 9, 10 o'clock on a weeknight just so that I didn't, you know, feel totally alone um, after a lengthy stay in the hospital. On top of it, he would take my son to, to uh, who's a ninth grader now, but he's got a daughter who's about the same age and is a tremendous basketball player as a as an eighth grader. But take them to workout sessions um, and things to keep Parker's mind occupied while his dad's laid in the hospital bed. Uh, I, I could never repay what Brian's done for me, but on the the work side of it, I think he's as good as there is. I'm just so thankful that we've had the team that we do and. Jerry Kelly running the show back in our studios, making sure that we all stay in line and and uh, and hitting things right on the technical side. It it's something that's a lot of fun to be a part of. That's great to hear. And finally, Chris, I know when basketball season ends, uh, you're going to make the transition back to. Are you going to make the transition back to baseball? Yeah, I've already started. I was there for opening day and uh, missed the Saturday game. Well, I was on at the beginning, but it's mostly. Lee show and and I uh, did the Sunday game and would have done Tuesday, uh, but the rain got us and washed out the the game with Troy and so Lee had the the ASU game and the lucky son of a gun is going to get to go to Vegas where baseball's got three big games and in the middle of that you know incredible timing the the Wilder fight he'll probably get to go to that so it's uh, I'm jealous but I'm I'm thankful I've got what I've got. And, uh, and look forward to, to going to Oxford this weekend and, and hopefully seeing Alabama bounce back and pick up a big win at the Pavilion. Yeah, I know you and your son threw up the first pitch opening day, another great moment. But, uh, yeah, just, just for, you know, you know, baseball I know is big to you as well. So, um, yeah. can't wait to hear you on the calls, um, you know, when, when you know, season, the season starts picking up again, um, you know, when it gets in, after, after basketball season. So. Right. Yeah, I'm thankful I'm able to do both when I can't, when the schedule allows. Obviously, we've got the commitment to basketball, and that takes priority. But uh, back on baseball as is, is well, and you're right, that was a, a fun deal. When uh, they asked me to throw out the first pitch, I said, look, I'd love to do it, but I don't know that I physically can. And, again, still with muscle issues and tightness, uh, you know, I could have thrown it three times and not gotten it to the plate. But uh, Bo said, 
don't you get Hudson to throw it, my, my eight-year-old? And I said, I love that idea. So let, let the record show and the video will back it up. He threw from the rubber, and he threw a strike. Yeah, and was, I've never had a prouder moment. It was really cool. That's awesome. Well, thank you again, Chris, for uh, for just you know sharing your time. I know time is one of the most valuable things you can give someone, and you gave us a lot of it, and we appreciate that. Tyler, I appreciate you having me. Thanks so much.